We want to know how can spirituality transform our social movements, and how can activism connect us to a life that embodies radical compassion? We'll ask these questions and more on The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. Welcome to The Rising, Spirituality for Revolution. This is your host, Rebecca Burnt. Today is part two of an interview I did with a guest host, Deb Helt, and Gabe Stoudemore, who is talking to us about church too and abuse within religious institutions and structures. There is frank discussion of sexual assault and abuse, so I do want you to be aware. Chelsea will be back with me next week for a brand new interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. So let me ask both of you, like, as as our culture as a whole is really starting to, like, wake up to the, the seriousness of this problem, what is the route towards redemption, if there's any for these men who have been found to abuse their power in this way? Like, how do we relate to them? How do we respond to them? Especially if at times they are people who have maybe are related to us or are our friends or are parts of our community in some way. Deb, you want to take this one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I certainly don't know the answer. I just, (laughs) I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is that men educate themselves as to like, like I I heard it when you were talking, Gabe, that you were like, I kind of wanted it to go away. And then, you know, it came back at you with, with just so much reality and so much intensity, I think that we have to like be willing to acknowledge the the scope of the impact. Let's talk about it from kind of like a gender lens. When someone's sexually assaulted, like in our culture, that's the tip of the iceberg. Like we don't see all the other situations where you're just mm-hmm. not seen, you know, you're just right. not seen as a whole person or you're and not. Misogyny exists in so many other permutations beyond just sexual assault. Right. And I don't mean to right. minimize, I don't mean to get off the topic or minimize, but just that I think, especially these serial abusers, that they understand that like, not only did they hurt, terrorize the women who they actually touch, but they created an environment where women went silent professionally and didn't fulfill their potential a lot of times because they weren't seen as leaders or they didn't respond the way that these men in power wanted them to. I mean, I, I don't, I'm speculating, but I think that a lot of people are looking at the Matt Lauer and Curry situation. Being <laughs> like, she just wasn't his type of gal. And I can't help but notice that the other two women were bubbly, pleasant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She was more of like a quiet, serious. I don't know. I, I don't mean to go off on the Matt Lauer, although I, I kind of want to too. But um, <laughs> that's okay. You can, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can talk about that. I feel like I lost track of your question. I mean, like, I'm just thinking about even just like, say, the average man who, who I don't, I don't know. Actually, I don't even know who the average man is anymore. <laughs> the, <laughs> like, John Q. Public. But, but um, let's just say, assuming the average man is like, or a lot of men who I have had either conversations with or overheard them speak or, you know, either online or in other places who sort of are like, oh, yeah, this stuff is all horrible and also, I'm scared. 
I had one friend say to me, like, gosh, like, I think about there are some things like who I was 10 years ago. I did some things that like weren't super cool. And I'm like, what if someone comes to dig up some dirt on me? And I don't think that this person was necessarily talking about like actual sexual assault, although I don't know. But just, you know, like being a kind of a douchey guy that like maybe saying some things that he shouldn't have said because he was part of a culture in which men were encouraged to do that. And and it's like like he's someone who's done a lot of his own inner work and is a really different person now. But it's like, right. how do I contend with that? Like I'm a little scared that these people might come for me. And and there is this um, sort of thing that like what Amber Tamblin was talking about where a lot of these men who like they're not they're not the ones doing the sexual harassment, but they're just like at the same time they can maybe see a little of themselves reflected in these men who are the who are the ones that are are falling, who are tumbling down and and thinking like, well, okay, how do we help them get better? Like, how do we help them find re- find redemption? And and a lot of, w- of women are just like, no, like we don't want to talk about that right now, <laughs> you know. You know, my question is, who is we? Is we women? Because what drives me crazy about this discussion of redemption is uh, asking women to be a solution to a problem that disproportionately impacts them doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, well, this problem affects you, you fix it. Well, that's great. But the problem is systemic you know, harassment by people in positions of, of power, who, which overwhelmingly happen to be men. Um so I can only really speak for myself. Everyone's done things they're not proud of. Um, there have been times where I've been potentially classless before, but I've never sexually assaulted or harassed a woman before because you it, it shouldn't be – my boss was talking to me about this the other day, and I really appreciate what he said. He was like, how hard is it to just not do that? You can be rude. You can be unkind. Like I'm not saying you should do these things. I'm just saying like, like everybody is these things. Sometimes, but it's almost like this implication that, you know, what can a man do but be a creep sometimes? And that's just, that's just rubbish. I just don't buy into it at all. Um, again, they're like, I'm sure comb through my own life and I'm sure I'll find lots of things that make me hang my head in just utter shame. Right. But, and I'm, I'm sure this is true for a lot of men. I don't understand what the fear uh, is of, smoking out sexual harassment and abuse Uh, to me that it's like going from a to z right away and i do think there should be some consequences so if the fear is that there are going to be consequences that were avoided 10 years ago then great maybe it'll stop these things from ever happening whether you're young or not but i have found that the sort of boys will be boys uh, argument not it's not really an argument but it's more of a thing people say to justify bad behavior it it, it spirals out of control. We're not just talking about seven-year-olds throwing rocks at a house or a car. A lot of times we're talking about 17, 18, 19-year-olds sexually assaulting and uh, traumatizing a young woman, and they they get out because they have their whole future in front of them. And as you pointed out, we pragmatically apply this exception, and it's usually to white men. So I think I I, I just – I don't buy into into any of it – for myself, you know, I'm not really interested in, in redemption. Again, like it's Louis C.K. has millions of dollars he made over his career. He earned that money, and nobody ha- is under any obligation to cast him or feature him ever again. Uh, 
I don't understand why that's unfair. There are millions of comics out there that'll never see the stage that are that are probably really talented. But let's find them. Let's find the ones that won't, you know, sexually assault or sexually harass women. Let's find them, and <laughs> we could feature them. Uh, it's for me. This is a. I don't really have a good applicable metaphor for it, but I don't see these kind of movements. So like, hey, let's redeem the drug pusher on our street that shot two people. I don't see that, but I do see this sort of, hey, you know, Matt Lauer is a really crappy thing. He's a really good journalist. What can we do to redeem him? I'm not interested in that, really. I'm really not interested in arguments that uh, try to put the onus on the disaffected group of people that are suffering under this systemic. To forgive them and to sort of reconcile with them. Yeah. Right. Prop them back up. No way. I mean, I can understand why Louis C.K. or, you know, Matt Lauer or whoever might, for their own personal, like, life, need to find a redemption narrative for themselves and that and that's fine, I think. But like, why does that redemption need to look like them coming back into power, right? And like being famous again or making a lot of money again? Like I, right. like I, I kind of think that like an authentic redemption narrative would look something more like they like I don't know serve the poor for the rest of their lives. Or they like, have a quiet life, yeah, and they are an everyday person. Right. Yeah. That's such a punishment, you know? Come on. Yeah, exactly. You get to keep your wife and kids. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, we really forget that. That sexually assaulting someone is a fucking crime. Yeah. You know what I mean? In this yeah. conversation, I'm like, you could be in jail, dude. So yeah. maybe you should stop crying about the loss of your TV show. Like, yeah. I read somewhere, I can't remember where, but someone was advocating too that, like, in the US, the the discussion around sex is very much around it's more around morality than it is around culture. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of think about that too, like when we get beyond the good and bad and we think more about like how do men and women suffer benefit or not benefit from the cultural messages. Mm -hmm. So like getting really pragmatic about like what might sex look like if you're actually getting consent and not just leaning on men will be men, but trying to stay on the right side of morality or something. You know what I mean? Right. Hmm. I I do have a question, um, especially concerning sort of the kind of the kind of middle ground. I don't ask people about what they do in their bedrooms, right? But I do know for myself that I have never had an encounter where in which I've, you know, I've been asked or asked somebody, okay, we're reaching that point in the night. May I have sex with you? Yes or no. Right. But I do know this, that if somebody doesn't want to have sex with me, (laughs) they'll make it clear. (laughs) I don't think it's hard. Yeah. Especially if someone's pushed to the point where they're actually saying no, like you've already crossed the line, but I don't understand why that's difficult. And I also don't really understand why men seem to have this inability to understand that if someone isn't, doesn't have their faculties to make a cognizant decision, then they can't give consent. Therefore, it's illegal and inappropriate for you to try to have sex with them. Mm-hmm. I, I mean... You're not it, sure why that's confusing? Yeah, you? I'm not. I mean, yeah. I've heard a lot of arguments about, you know, well, there's a lot of blurred lines. And yeah, I think men try to blur the lines, but I don't <laughs> think those lines are inherently blurred. And I, I don't, you know, I don't mean to just... To just Robin Thicke's know, over there just blurring the lines. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I, I mean... It's funny because everybody jokes about Baby It's Cold Outside being a really rapey song. Mm -hmm. But, like, she's telling you to go home (laughs) or that she wants to leave, you know? Um, Yeah. 
I, and I do think that there's this sort of, there's a straw man argument. And I'm going to say straw man intentionally because I think it's an argument that men make um, that projects this idea that consent is ambiguous. And it's not. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't, I've, I've, that's something I've never experienced. And uh, I, I know that, you know, we don't make rules based on their own experience, but I think if people are honest, it's pretty obvious if someone wants to have sex with you. It's pretty obvious if they don't. And maybe it's not pretty obvious if they do. But like if you make a move and you misinterpret things, they're going to turn away from you. They're going to say, oh, I'm not really into this. And that's where it ends. You yeah. know? So I don't, I don't really understand the ambiguity. I mean, I can say that like especially as a woman being raised – having been raised in purity culture where I was taught a lot of shame around my sexual desires – I've certainly felt conflicted about whether I wanted to have sex with somebody or not. And so I do think that has been part of my work, like like figuring out, like, do I really, is this really what I want or is it not? Like, am I, am I just doing this because I want someone to like me, you know? Like, right. but the other part of that is that I, I think I have, you know, you said at one point, you said, well, if someone doesn't want to have sex with you, they're going to make that pretty clear. I mean, I think I've I've had sex with people that I didn't really, you know, with men where I didn't really want to, but I didn't really say no either because I just, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's like, it's kind of like when you were in that situation with when you woke up in the middle of the night and like he was like rubbing up on you and moaning and right. you, you didn't say no. You just, just stood there right you're you just are laid right. there i guess that's true yeah you, i guess that's true maybe i should rephrase that <laughs> um i guess i don't i don't mean to say that it's going to be cl- that someone's sexual attention towards you were going to be clear mm-hmm. but i don't think i don't think it was hard especially for uh the, the player in my story to understand that that was an inappropriate act i don't think it's hard for for a man to be able to discern what's happening in the situation i mean and if you're yes. not sure why don't they ask yes. I, i've asked before and i've been told flat out no i'm not really into this and yeah it's maybe a little embarrassing but that's life isn't it like you just stop yeah i i, I guess I, i'm and that's where i maybe think maybe i'm using too absolute no i just want to say ahead. like i think that's what that's the whole point of like a, an, a lack of no does not mean fuck yes. <laughs> like, right. you know, you know when someone's really into you and they want to have sex with you. Like, and, and if they're not, you can tell, like, if you're paying attention, you right. can tell, like, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't right. feel right. This person doesn't totally seem to it or they feel conflicted. And then you ask about it. Right. And I think that's if kind there's of like mutual participation. You'd think, well, I'm doing all the stuff here. Something is wrong. Right. You know, like, right. I agree. I mean, yeah. I think maybe it, it's clear to the two of you now but I'm just wondering what if you're raised with all these cultural messages that like a girl will say no six times because that means that she's on the right side of the you know the purity game or whatever yeah you know what I mean or I'm I'm not saying I'm not justifying it I'm just saying people might get detached from their own feelings and do things right I'm thinking this is an extreme example but sometimes when I think about these issues where I'm like people doing things with a cruelty that's hard for me to relate to because I'm such a like shame spiraler and I make one mistake and it's just like, you know, there's like an overreaction sometimes, but like, what about like, um, child soldiers, right. Or, or parents who, who physically punish their kids in a way that we would determine to be abusive, but out of like fear 
of what the world will do to them if they don't understand that the world is dangerous or something along those lines. You know what I mean? I'm wondering if stuff like that happens where that's why, I mean, when I, when I'm talking about acknowledging the magnitude, I, I can't imagine that obviously Harvey Weinstein wasn't aware that he was like potentially injuring the soul and livelihood of another person every single time he did that or, or became emotionally disconnected from that reality. Either he didn't, mm couldn't fully grasp it. It was beyond his like ability to comprehend or he became desensitized to other human beings. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm just wondering just by way of theorizing. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a good open-ended question. Uh, it's funny because like I look at it, I interpret a guy like him di differently. Uh, I, I look at Weinstein and I say, well, this guy knew exactly what he was doing, mm. especially because he made, arrangements with people where in which he knew they wouldn't have sex with him under normal circumstances. So he used his position of power in order to get what he want, wanted or um, yeah. use certain contexts and situations to assault them. And certainly it's an interesting question about like, you know, what, what's wrong with him to make that sort of work in his head. If it did, it's, it's always interesting. I, I think in terms of kind of normative culture, uh, which is sort of a problematic thing to say, but I think talking about purity culture or various constructs that really convolute the lines. Th those are things that I wonder about how far the, the influence of those things reach outside of the, those contexts that generate them. You know what I mean? So like in, in the instance of these people in pop culture that are being kind of thrown out, thrown out of these spaces as I think they should be, I'm wondering how much fringe subcultures play in. Or do we do we think and do we assume that these people knew they were being appropriate and just did it anyway because they didn't care or they cared about what they wanted more, you know? Right. That it could maybe it's hard for me spiritually to. This could be totally possible that maybe it's just hard for me to hold that possibility that there is no reasonable explanation. Right. You know what I mean? That that almost scares me as a human being that that someone could fathom the mm. magnitude of the pain they're causing and not care. It's you kind-hearted spiritual people. Maybe it, I know, <laughs> I know. Good I, intent all the time. I'll be the first to cop to it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I I just wanted to empathize to with your experience. <laughs> it just like when I had an experience in undergrad at a community college that was so minor, but it really showed me it, basically what happened is um, on the last day of class of a Spanish class, uh, a friend and I stayed late and to get our grades. Right. And I had a very like friendly uncle kind of relationship with the professor. Like he thought it was funny and it was sort of um, warm, you know, and paternal and not, not the least bit, um, you know what I'm saying? Not flirty at all. Right. And on the last day, I remember my friend said, um, sometimes I wonder what you think of us. And she meant our Spanish, right? And he took that as an opportunity to say, he's like, I shouldn't say. And then he's like, well, I like you as an intellectual. He points to my friend and he says, I like you as a woman. And I oh. remember the feeling, yeah. And then right before we left, he, um, he held up his hand. He like cupped my cheek with his hand. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I really don't, I really don't believe at all that he meant to be hurtful, but I remember my reaction was very surprising. I felt like I had icicles in my veins. I had just mm -hmm. like 100% anxiety. And I, I, as soon as he was gone, I burst into tears and we ended up going out and having a beer. 
And I was like, why did I attract that kind of attention? Yeah. Why did this happen? Like, And I just felt a grossness that I had a hard time explaining at the time. And I really don't think this guy meant to – it's not like you're such yeah. – you know what I mean? I don't think this guy had any uh, malintent at all, but I will never forget that feeling of being flooded with <laughs> – I feel silly telling this story because I, I don't consider it a story of abuse. I think consider it a story of a misunderstanding. But when that sense of authority, the you know, that boundary was violated, there was this instant flood of like shame and yuckiness. And I imagine that what you went through is like, you know, that times 500,000. <laughs> Funny enough, though, it, in some ways it was, in some ways it was the opposite because never in my wildest dreams did I say what did I do to, to attract or what about me attracts this kind of attention you know mm-hmm. um, and I think that I think that does speak to something that as a man I don't really have to I was you know raised as a evangelical and you know I'd never purity culture was about what women tempted men to do it was sort of this I had a base instinct it was sinful but women, just make sure you you don't tempt them unnecessarily, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I racked myself for what I thought in hindsight was poor decision-making or weak, weak behavior or things in myself that I found to be unacceptable. And the thing is, you know, I, I wasn't known for somebody as somebody who would take crap from anybody. And I'm still not, really. <laughs> um, so I think that's why it was so hard for me to reconcile. But for me, it was I was I couldn't reconcile why I didn't project the kind of strength I, I in hindsight wanted to. Not necessarily, you know, what did I do to have this happen to me, or you know, yeah. what's wrong with me? And, and that's that's like astounding, and it, it's interesting to hear. Like, I know you don't constitute it as abuse and things like that, and you know, I. But it is hard for me to fathom why somebody who is in a position of power wouldn't assume that this could potentially make somebody uncomfortable because what if they don't want me to do this? What can they say or do? Yes. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just one of the things that's so interesting to me is just that it seems like men who have been privileged and who have grown up in that and grown up with an expectation that they'll have a certain degree of power and privilege. It's like it's their fish and it's the water they're swimming in. And it almost seems like they can't see it. (laughs) Like, you know, because it's like, yeah, yeah. I, I think there are a lot of them that are genuinely baffled, like, like they really just don't get it. They don't understand it. They're like, well, well, no, of course she said yes. Like she she wanted to have sex with me, you know, like and never, never for a moment think about the power dynamics involved or, you know, she she didn't she didn't say anything to me then. Right. Gabe, thanks so much for telling your story I was very um absorbed and moved and stuff I I'm so sorry you went through that no thank you and no um it's it's weird because sometimes uh selling this back it's it's weird like it's it's still weird for me to tell like it doesn't seem like there are times where it's really vivid sometimes I feel really detached from it It isn't like when I was recounting it it wasn't it felt pretty detached Mm -hmm. I'm sure there'll be times that I'll go back and think about this and I'll be like, Oh God, what the hell? You know? Are you like um, really feel the feelings more than other times? Or? Yeah. It, and I know I've said it a bunch of times, but really the hardest thing for me to let go of is just being pissed off with myself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's the hardest thing is just getting past that. And it's 
something I'm trying to expand for myself is empathy for, I mean, you're obviously empathetic for what happens to people who are the victims in these situations. What I'm really trying to expand is my empathy for people that don't leave abusive situations Mm -hmm. or that even years after the fact being gone will just think they're pieces of crap. And I'm just like, it's been hard for me because, you know, you'll talk to them and you'll say, Hey, you know, like, this is what you did. This is like your strength and you got out of the situation and this is what they did. And they're, they're clearly the, the villain in this story and all this kind of stuff and underestimating the emotional toll that it just puts on people and what it does to someone's, uh, I guess, soul just cracks them in half sometimes. And it's just, it's heartbreaking and it's very difficult sometimes, I, I guess, for me to even be able to understand the, the depths of that because you know it's because just some somebody just really messed them up. And I don't really – I don't have the resources or the uh, kind of know-how or ability to, to do right in those situations because you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, what I can do. Yeah, that's one thing. I actually wrote this down. I didn't know exactly how to say it because I can't (laughs) just string together. (laughs) Anyway, I've been reading some stuff about like codependency for my for work. And one thing that really resonated with me is like the idea that certain types of abuse causes you to lose your connection to your own reality as in you don't you're taught to not believe your own reality. Mm. There's a million ways that it can happen, but that loss of connection to a belief in your own reality to me leads to like like a lifetime of self-loathing. And I think I was just thinking like there's your story is so amazing because like this this person sensed that you would be sensitive to like a certain kind of attunement, you know, that it would yeah. be like really like man, attunement when you come from a certain type of background or you've been missing it, it's like the most powerful heroin you could ever take, you know, and he knew that and he like gave you gifts and he exploited like your feelings of safety. And there was part of you that like didn't connect with the reality of what was happening until it just became so obvious. And I'm just, I'm happy for you that it sucks, but I'm happy for you that that happened so that you could deal with it. You know what I mean? That like the story became coherent. I guess I'm just, yeah, that, that the part where he encouraged you, to disconnect from your own reality, I thought was really powerful. Unless that doesn't mm-hmm. resonate with you. No, it does sorry, resonate with me. Beck, I'm wondering if we can full loop this on, because I have a really, really strong feelings that in terms of redemption, the focus really shouldn't be on the people who are doing the abuse, but the focus, I mean, when something like this happens to you, you do break a little bit inside. There's mm-hmm. nothing you can do to prevent that. And so as a result, redeeming how we perceive our realities and how we perceive people around us that really care or even uh, images of ourselves is really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a great idea that that's. That's the kind of redemption that we re- need right now. We need redemption for the victims. <laughs> like mm. we need redemption for the people that have been broken. Right. Um, yeah. It's not our job. It's not the job of the people who have been victimized to like provide redemption for <laughs> or opportunities for redemption to the ones who, who've been the abusers. Mm. Also to have people's liberation somehow tied to whether or not they understand the magnitude of the pain they've caused. Like we can't wait for that either. So what do you mean? Like that their liberation should be tied to that or that? No, but I I feel like, um, I don't know if this is a little bit of what Gabe was saying is that it's easy for the conversation to slip into like, 
how do we punish them? How do we make them understand how serious this mm-hmm. is and how much damage they've done when in actuality there's so much there that we can't control? We, yeah. we can control, like, can we make our our narratives, like, coherent and self-loving? And can we understand within ourselves the importance of it and, and work to change the culture? And, you know, I don't know. Those are just some thoughts. Yeah. But. No, I mean, I think that that kind of plays into the whole codependency thing that you're talking about. Because it's like, it's like when you're in, a, in an abusive relationship or something and, and you keep thinking, like, Oh, like if I can just get this person to change, you know, <laughs> you know, and like right. here focusing on like, how do we change these like terrible men or like, like how, how do we get them to see the magnitude of what they've done? It's like, I, you know, you're right. Like there are a lot of variables we can't control. And at some point they have to decide if they want to see that for themselves. Well, um, one, one thing that jumps out to me is, um, and it's, you know, I'm not a teacher and it's been a long time since I've been in a public school, but what I never remember seeing is any sort of educational curriculum on what happens to abuse victims yeah. after they're abused. I, I mean, the reality is that this is not a small fraction of the population. Yeah. Um, it, a lot of people have stories like this. And it's not – I mean, it's not a situation, you know, like in Germany when they do education on the Second World War and the, and the Third Reich and all that where they have to go all these – museums and things it's not about saying this is who we we used to be let's not be that again it's it's about understanding this is a thing that happens in our culture this is how people are affected by it this is the statistics of suicide after these are the statistics Mm -hmm. of you know substance abuse problems and all sorts of things that are a real clear and present danger to the people affected in these situations and um broader conversations need to be had. And I mean, I, I really think that if we're ever going to have a culture that is as, you know, void of this kind of abuse as it can be, it needs to start with education and conversations and legislatures introducing, you know, initiatives to make this stuff happen. I love what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise we're just saying men fix yourselves. Well, I've never seen anybody in a position of lucrative power just decide to acquiesce. I, I, I haven't seen that before. Right. Um, you know, abdicating the the English throne in the forties was not even really a, a power give up. Um, so, um, but I do think that, and of course, we're not going to ask the victims to educate their, their their abusers. So, something has to happen from the time we're children to understand. You know, just like sexual education teaches us how to have safe sex and what sexual health is all about. I don't understand why we can't have these conversations early. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's part of the reason sex education needs to start very young. And like in kindergarten, kids need to be taught about their bodies and their boundaries and other people's bodies and what consent looks like. You know, that there's that's what people are starting to teach very young kids. Like, yeah, you you can say no to being hugged by somebody, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> things right. like that. Um Something you said made me think of, um, I think Bessel van der Kolk talks about this. He's a well-known expert in trauma who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, Or maybe I read this somewhere else, but like, I think it was back in the 80s or something, there was work being done to research trauma and, and PTSD, and they had developed this like trauma checklist or questionnaire to like um, evaluate 
people who had had traumatic experiences as children, like from being abused, like physically or sexually, especially. And they were doing a study and they were giving this trauma checklist to like people who were known to have PTSD and then also to like a control group, right? Mm. And the control group was checking almost as many boxes as the PTSD group, like, right? Like, like saying that they had all these adverse child experiences. And the more they started to research it, they realized like this stuff is really, really prevalent and it's widespread in the population. And actually probably a lot of mental illnesses, like whether um, like borderline personality disorder and other things may actually really be complex PTSD because like all of these people have all this trauma and they tried to like actually change the DSM and they wanted like more research going into it. And it was like the powers that be were all like, no, we don't want to even think about this. Like they shut it down because they were like, we can't deal with the reality that maybe like there's this widespread pandemic of child sexual and physical abuse going on. Right. And that kind of speaks like from a therapist perspective, like something Gabe said reminded me of this too, is that when you see someone who is very anxious or very self-loathing or has a severe substance abuse problem, they start to believe that that's them and those are their qualities or their problems. Right. Or even a hard time making decisions or just a sense of disconnectedness from yourself. You start to associate with it and believe it's you. Mm. Yeah, I am my issues. I am what happened to me. You Mm -hmm. know, things like that. Yeah. Well, I feel like it it sounds like you might be – in the process of recovering, like with the self-criticism stuff for what happened, like you, you talked about having a certain identity around. Well, what yeah. Happened. Didn't yeah. you like around the feeling of being weak? Was it? I can't remember how you. Yeah. Played. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, I tried to sort of just keep that part of my life away from what I thought about every day because it's like, well, that wasn't you or that's not who you mm-hmm. are. You know, that's, or that was you when you were at your weakest or most pathetic, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Another hard part about writing this was like, I never wanted to be, hey, my name is Gabe. I was sexual assaulted, sexually assaulted. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to be, but like, I, I don't, I don't even sort of like that people know this sometimes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's something I'm working on too. This is something that happened. I mean, it's part of my life story, whether I like it or not. It is certainly not an identity thing for me, but by trying to sort of keep it out of my story, I've kind of given it more identity power in a sense, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, it, you're right when you say it, it really there's there's so many layers of effectiveness to, to kind of all of this. And like sometimes they hit you in ways that sort of you can't anticipate and you're not really, you, you didn't know existed. So, I mean, I could wake up in, you know, six months and have feelings and impressions that are to do with this. Um, that I never thought it's actually, you know, in this book I'm writing and I was kind of humorously titled, but I certainly wouldn't say that I became an atheist because of the situation that's disingenuous and not, not correct. I was sort of moving away from faith for a long, long time. That being said, um, in the same way that we can pretend that we make decisions based on facts, or we can say that we believe in God because of theology or what we believe is like abstractly true, whatever the case, there's this other part of us that is actually real. Most of what's behind our decision-making is that other part of us. And that's our experience, our formulative experiences and uh, 
how we feel about what we're experiencing. Uh, and so absolutely positively, I'm pretty sure I'd probably end up kind of within atheism regardless, but I, w- I certainly wouldn't feel the way I do about the same way about religion or think some of the same things or make some of the same assumptions about people in ministry positions as I do now without these experiences. Absolutely. And I think it's disingenuous for me to like write a book about atheism and Christianity in my, in my story. I left all this stuff out of the original, out of the original book. Wow. It was more a book about like deconstructing presuppositions of atheism and talking about bisexuality and all that kind of stuff. That's what it was about. And I was like, man, this is the most inauthentic book ever. I'm ignoring this one of the single largest things that happened over the last decade in my life. If you're gonna, really going to write something, you, you might as well be, you know, write what you know. So it, it kind of took took a bit of a shape. And, you know, this assertion in my book was that, you know, our experiences influence us, you know. So, like, I, of course, understand that there are lo- loads of people that carry spirituality that would say, no, Gabe, God doesn't think you're gross. Of course, that God doesn't. The God I experienced, which, of course, I don't think is, you know, real in any objective sense, but the the sort of theodicy I've been given from people of faith is that for a number of reasons, some humorous and some very serious, um, that God caricature thinks I'm a bit gross, right? So if I'm going to talk about how I've made those, come to make those assertions, I need to be honest about what happened here and be a little bit more, more vulnerable and less snarky and funny about it all and kind of just tell a more honest story, I think. Can I ask a question? Um, is there anything in particular you can identify, like people or things that supported you to be able to come out or supported you to make sense of your story? Like, I'm just curious. I don't think there's any, like, one thing. I think that, you know, therapy has been helpful. Um, I don't know. I think it was really the church to tag got to me because I thought I was pretty emotionally removed from this for a while. Like I've been therapy in therapy for over a year and this happened a while ago. Even the last stuff ha- happened like two years ago. So I was kind of like, you know, like we've moved on. I'm okay. Like, you know, the church does its thing over there and I do my own thing here and you know, we're good. And then I saw this, these stories of all these people on this hashtag that were very similar and a couple of them just really got to me. And I was like, man, it, it takes another victim to understand how manipulated you can be and how twisted up you can be inside during this kind of thing. And that's why I wanted to tell my story. Because, again, I do kind of have this reputation in my small sphere of influence as somebody that's not going to be manipulated, somebody that's not going to be pushed around. Um, I don't really have like a, an open invitation on me that says, hey – challenge me without a supported argument. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just not the reputation I have. So I think for me to come forward, especially I'm not really concerned uh, with what random people think about me or what I write or whatever, but the people I know and the people I have some sort of uh, influence with or contact with, it's really important that I have a positive relationship with them. And if, if me coming forward can help with sort of the unknown stories out there that I'm not aware of. That's great. The people that I know that have been affected by this stuff, that's even better. Um, but yeah, I felt I was at finally at a point where I'm like, okay, this is the time to do it. This church two thing is, has got some legs. I think now's the time for me to be honest about what happened and hopefully it can be positive for others. It was really the kind of the catalyst for it, I guess. 
I just want to thank you both for being here for this conversation and looking for a way to sort of like come to conclusion. Like I really, I do love that idea that like those of us who have experienced, well, those of us who have experienced like being abused in this way and also, you know, maybe, maybe some of, maybe those people too, who have been the abusers, like everyone kind of needs to find their own redemption whatever that looks like, but I'm excited about the idea that like we can find our own redemption, like you were saying, Gabe. And I know for me, looking at some of my own stories, you know, it's like any trauma that I've gone through, and I know this isn't the case for everybody, but it it's, I've always tried to approach it as like, at least at some point, once I was able to, able to process it, as like, okay, how am I going to allow this to, to help me learn and grow? You know, because like I have that choice, like I can let this like totally wreck me and destroy me or I can choose to like find a way through and find a way to like become stronger because of it. And I'm wondering, what does that redemption look like for you? Mm. I think, you know, I think just being comfortable with comfort's the wrong world word because I'm not sure it's healthy to be comfortable with what happened to me. Right. Mm hmm. But you have to find a way to sort of bear it and accept it without it swallowing up who you are. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, it's been this process of understanding that this is never going to go away for me. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things I can do. I can just try not talking about it again and move on and that's it. But if I want to sort of use it in a way that is able to sort of propel me forward in my life, I need to kind of confront it be open about it and not, not to be like that guy that says, hi, nice to meet you. My name's Gabe. Here's this link to what happened to me. But, um, I don't know. I think, I feel like it doesn't come natural to me to be open about traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm great at talking about other stuff that's happened to other people or chatting about kind of abstract concepts, things that are tied and tethered to my personal life. Yeah. I'm not so great at talking about so I guess the biggest point of growth for me is that I'm, I think I'm a little bit more open. I'll never be that guy that wears my life and experiences on my sleeve in, in an accessible way for people to potentially manipulate. And maybe that's pessimistic for me to assume that's what could or would happen, but that's who I am. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say I'm more open. I certainly would have, wouldn't have been publishing articles on traumatic experiences if it weren't for the therapy I've gotten after this. So mm -hmm. I think it has – resulted in a lot of personal growth. I'm a firm believer that we don't have to actually experience like things like this to grow yeah, in similar ways. But definitely. <laughs> um, I think the silver lining is that if someone is in a similar position to the one I found myself in or um, anybody else with a similar story, you know, there are positive ways forward and you're not going to feel this disgust with yourself or you're not always going to feel the way you feel but there has to be a point where you say, okay, uh, I need to start dealing with this, you know, in order for that to happen. Yeah, I know there was a moment for me where I, I realized, like, I had to start being open about my own sexual trauma. Some of it, which was, well, all of which in a lot of ways was rooted in purity culture. <laughs> but some of it, which was just exclusively the trauma of being in, in, in a purity culture where I was taught to, like, feel a disgust for my own sexuality and sexual urges and desires and my body and all those things. And some of which came as, from being sexually assaulted, but which 
you know, was also kind of tied up with purity culture because I think I was taught sort of not to really, um, not to have a healthy relationship with my sexuality. I wasn't taught about enthusiastic consent because I was just supposed to say no all the time, you know? Right. Well, and that's um, the part, I, I mean, in our friendship, we talk about this all the time. That's the part that's underneath the iceberg. It's like when a woman doesn't get to make mistakes or experiment, when that's the culture, that's mm-hmm. a form of abuse too, I think. When people are shamed out of having experiences and learning new things, how is that not abuse? I don't mean to put it on the same level, but it's yeah. a, it's part of the same thing of keeping us in control, keeping us blaming ourselves. No, I think it's true. I think that's totally true. And I think, uh, yes, you're right. All of that is abuse and it is um, it creates its own kind of trauma. And I had a point where I realized like I was feeling so ashamed of myself for having grown up this way and having this like fucked up relationship to my own sexuality and, and having this trauma that like, I didn't know how to talk about it with my sexual partners. And as a result, a lot of times I didn't have very long or deep relationships because I I didn't know how to be honest. And it was, wasn't until I could really start being open and honest about my own past and my own my own trauma and, and have those. I remember the first time like that I, I started to, to tell some of my stories to somebody I was dating. And it was just like, it's ter- it was terrifying. It was like terrifying to be that open and honest. And of course, you know, afterwards it was like, oh, well, yeah, like a lot of women have that. Like, I get it, you know. Um, but as I began to like push myself to be more open, it became easier and easier each time. And then paradoxically, all that shame had less and less power over me, right? You know, it was like, that was like, that was essential first step to healing, I think. I have a question actually about this for both of you. Um, So for me, I'm not tied at all to purity culture anymore in any way, shape or form. So by the time I was in graduate school, I had already had this revelation of the assertions that my religious text had made. I just didn't believe in any way that would allow me to identify anymore. So I didn't feel tied to any of it. So so to that point, you know, I'd been pretty sedate in my sexual activity. I went to Europe and I went crazy and I felt great (laughs) about it. Um, But my question for you, for you is even though uh, I'm not sure what traditions you're from, uh, uh, Beck, I know sort of what spirituality looks like for you, but not really that much. Um, But I do know you mean what Even, it looks like now as opposed to what I grew Well, up not in? necessarily what it looks like now for you and how you relate to purity culture now, but it has to be difficult to separate all that stuff. You know, uh, even if you're if you're still in a, a community that believes in some sort of spirituality, I'm sure you're going to come up against things that remind you of certain things in, uh, from the purity culture that you left that still make it hard in some way, shape, or form to have sort of a healthy sexual lifestyle. Do you have a, a, a difficult time separating from some of that stuff? I don't think so much anymore. Like I have a very, I mean, like to me, the purity culture thing is something that I feel like I've kind of like moved on from, for the most part. Like, and I don't necessarily experience it in the spiritual communities that I'm part of now. Like I don't really find that that's what people are really fixated on. Um, in fact, one of the things that I think that has sometimes get lost in people who have moved on from from purity culture is that like in a, in a lot of progressive spiritual spaces because nobody wants to be a, an uptight prude or like you know nobody wants to replicate purity culture is that sometimes there's not always like 
a healthy, like a good conversation around what healthy boundaries around sexuality look like. Um, I mean, and that's part of the the broader culture in general, and that's part of like why we're we're dealing, we're, like why we're having this like culture wide crisis at this moment is because, you know, for me, my experience was like jumping from purity culture to a culture that really commodified sexuality, and it was like you know because like when I was in my my coming out of purity culture, it was kind of like the heyday of like sex in the city and stuff, which was all about like, like you're empowered by being like sexy and having a lot of sex with a lot of people and blah, 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 whatever. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that to me started to feel like it's still, it's still caught up in like this idea that your worth is, I don't know, like, Maybe like, in a way, yeah, it's like you're disembodied in a different way. Right, totally, totally. Yeah. Completely. And and so that was a lot of the struggle for me. And the other thing that, that I, I really experienced was that, like, because, like, when I was in progressive religious or other spiritual spaces, because nobody wanted to be puritanical about sex, like, we just didn't talk about it in – like, well, how can how do I have integrity around my sexuality? How do I have integrity in my relationships with other people? And so I saw a lot of, even if it wasn't necessarily like sexual harassment or abuse or anything, just like lack of honesty in sexual relationships. Like people, like not, not like talking about their expectations and talking, like not able to have like a sense of clarity. And and I did see some of what I what I would say is like, um, which occurs in a lot of spaces, not just spiritual spaces, but like, yeah, just like lack of integrity and honesty, you know? And so like you would you would see like men come in maybe and like kind of like make their way through all of the women in the group, like having zero relationships with all of the women in the group. And like you like date one for a little while and then go bored and like moved on to the other and like and then the women would leave because like they felt like like really awkward and because yeah, because a weird type of sex commune if they don't leave <laughs> well yeah <laughs> i mean well there's that i'm not even talking about that there is the whole i mean god knows like certainly in, in every spiritual community um ones that are progressive and ones that are conservative they all have their sex scandals and we see it in yoga communities and buddhist communities <laughs> we see it um yeah it it's it's everywhere um but yeah so that was that was one of the things that I started to to ask myself is like like what does it look like to have some standards or, or expectations for how we act in our relationships with one another without being repressive or overly prescriptive but you know yeah I'm I'm with you I was just thinking like words what happened to sexuality being more about connection than it is about like conquering one another and having experiences. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's, but it is, it is interesting what you're saying back and that there's always like this sort of, whether it's progressive or conservative, this idea to um, make sexual ethics, a group thing, as opposed to something you set for yourself. Yeah, well, but I think there should be some group sexual ethics. Like, I think if you're in a group, like, you need to have some... <laughs> That's the name of my band. Just kidding. Group sexual, group sexual ethics. ethics. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, I even think about, like, like look, in, in, in workplaces, like, you need to have some, like, this is what the expectations are here, you know, because, like, it can get messy and well, it can well, yeah, cause yeah, problems. Yeah. I really people. meant more sort yeah, of, yeah. like, do I think, do I feel good if I hook up with somebody every night or do I feel bad? 
That, that's what right. I mean. I don't, I don't mean rules and like, yeah, <laughs> let's all set our own sexual harassment standards. <laughs> no. But yeah, no, no, no. So yeah. I think, I think we, we both need that, that like we need to each like look at what are my own individual boundaries and like standards for sexuality that feel like they're in alignment and integrity with who I am and my values. But also in communities, we need to talk about like, how do we support one another in sort of identifying our own internal values? And like, also, what are the values that we're going to hold in common around this? And that involves like having some difficult conversations that like aren't always super comfortable, you know? Well, I don't envy you community people for having to hash that out. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to just wrap this up. Um, I'm just going to ask you, Deb, what is bringing you hope right now? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I've been listening to a podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking, which is like, do you guys know this podcast? I do. No. I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. It's just funny that I would, because <laughs> it's not, it's about grief and loss, basically, but I yeah. think it gives me hope because I'm in a little bit of a hard period. I'm in a transition period and trying to figure stuff out. And I think sometimes, hearing people speak honestly about their suffering makes you feel like you're not alone when you're struggling. So mm. I think that's for sure. And, mm. but you said, what gives you hope? Yeah. It's just a question. Just don't, don't take it too seriously. <laughs> okay. I guess that what gives me hope is, um, feeling communion with people, even if it's like podcasts and mm. people telling the truth that gives me hope because the world's real fucked right now. That's how I feel. Mm. Yeah, so. Yeah. What about you, Gabe? Uh, there's a new Star Wars film coming out. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> nice. It does give nice. me a little bit of hope. But uh, no, um, funny because, as you said, Deb, there is a lot of sort of gnarly stuff happening right now. So what, I'm, what I've been kind of fixated on are things that are created with a lot of, a lot of emotion, whether there's a coherence to them or not. So... Lately, I've been into Dave Van Ronk's music. He's a folk musician from the early, late 1960s. On one hand, he's this really, really great jazz ragtime guitarist. And on the other hand, he's got this really raw wartime Nam-era music that really makes me feel things. Um, I had his song, Luang Prabang, on repeat all last week, so... Yeah, that's um, for some reason. There's something about things that were created with raw and authentic emotion that uh, yeah. makes me feel good about the world we live in. So I would definitely recommend Dave Van Ronk and uh, Luang for Bang to everybody. It'll <laughs> <laughs> give you hope. Mm. Cool. Well, for me, I think. Um, oh gosh, there's like there are a lot of things giving me hope right now. And I think just being able to have conversations like this, like honestly, Gabe, your piece that you wrote this week did give me hope because I was just really, and honestly, because it was published partly because it was published in relevant magazine, which I've made fun of a lot over the years. (laughs) I relentlessly make fun of relevant. So uh, yeah, for those, yeah. For those who don't know, and Deb, you probably don't know. I've never heard of it. Yeah. It's a, it's a, basically an evangelical magazine that was started by like the sort of cool hipster son of like this evangelical publisher who publishes like a Pentecostal magazine. That it, all sounds terrifying. Yeah. And it has some, it had some decent stuff. And I actually, 
from the very beginning, they had some interesting things that were kind of pushing the boundaries and asking some healthy questions uh, that pushed against some of like the Christian dogma a little bit, but they never really went too far. Like, and I used to always like, I was always kind of like a uh, relevant magazine. It's for like people who want, like the Christians who want to think that they're edgy for, but without really having to challenge themselves in any way. The front page says why your prayers aren't working and working is in parentheses. Yeah. In quotes. In quotes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So all of that is just like to say, yeah, I, I was just like, wow, like for them to publish this, not by not just by someone who openly identifies as an atheist and a bisexual, you know, like, and to take that seriously and, and to say, like, this is a valuable story that we need to hear, even if they did give it that title of, like, what was it? Like, I might not be an atheist if it wasn't for my church, too, story. Well, and I got to give, so uh, I got to have some transparency here. I do have a friend on the inside. So I uh-huh. don't think this would have been published if it weren't for my friend. Okay. But um, on top of that, I understand what the group wanted to do with it because, you know, but also because of this friend, there was ambiguity, like might. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can live with that. As long as I didn't come out and say, I'm an atheist because I was sexually assaulted. Like that I wasn't going to have because it contradicts what I would explicitly <laughs> write in my own book. So like that, that I, I didn't want it to happen. But, um, but yeah, um, there was some there was some help getting this to where it needed to go. Well, thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you want to hear more episodes on spirituality and activism, check out listentotherising.com. And even better, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time on The Rising. <laughs>